The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What we need to be thinking about is more of kind of a crash emergency program whereby Taiwan can stock up on the sorts of capabilities that would really give PLA planners and Xi Jinping pause. And, and so I think that those are the sorts of acquisitions that the United States needs to be encouraging. It probably has to be coupled with more realistic military staff talks, for instance, between the United States and Taiwan to give the Taiwanese leadership some confidence within the confines of our, our one China policy and our policy of strategic ambiguity that the United States actually would come to Taiwan's assistance if it suffered an unprovoked attack by the PRC. But but if we don't push Taiwan pretty hard to load up on the sort of capabilities that would actually make a meaningful difference in a fight with China sometime this decade, we're not helping them and we're not helping ourselves. I'm Matt Gluck, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 19th, 2022. What is the nature and timescale of U.S. geopolitical competition with China? Which country is stronger in the near term and long term? And what will the answers to these questions mean for Chinese military and political activities over the next 10 years? I sat down with Hal Brantz, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and Michael Beckley, an Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University, to discuss their new book, Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. We discussed the author's argument that China is structurally far weaker than people think, but that this weakness makes China more likely to act aggressively over the next several years. We also discussed the implications of this argument for U.S. policy and to what extent international initiatives that are already underway are responsive to this near-term threat. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 19th, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley on the emerging conflict with China. Hal and Mike, thanks for joining us. I really enjoyed reading your book. To get started, could one of you describe how the idea for the book emerged and why you decided it was important to write at this time? So I think the idea emerged actually in a seminar that uh, we were doing over at AEI, where we're both fellows a couple of years ago, and Mike was giving a, a presentation on an academic paper he had written on what happens when fast-growing great powers slow down and how that tends to make them a bit prickly and dangerous. And it occurred to me at that point that I had actually written something similar on the dangers of a declining China a couple of years before. And so we started swapping emails and decided that we were thinking about a, a complex problem in, in the same way. And, and so tried to craft a book that would bring together 
some of the, the things that we both do. And so I'm a historian by, by trade. I think a lot about the history of great power rivalry. I've studied the Cold War and so on and so forth. Mike is uh, an IR scholar who spent significant time in China. And so we figured we'd put all that together and, and try to put a little bit of a fresh spin on the let's hyperventilate about China genre of books. In the book, you outlined the historical developments that empowered China and brought us to the current moment where the U.S. now views China as its significant geopolitical competitor. Mike, could you take us through a bit of that history and how we got here? Sure. So, you know, in the initial stages of the Cold War, China for a time became America's number one enemy because you had direct clashes between the two forces in the Korean War, tremendous hostility. But then obviously in the 1970s, things change when the United States exploits the Sino-Soviet split and is able to really recruit China as a quasi ally. And so that sort of happy marriage of convenience extends all the way until the end of the Cold War. But really, you know, in 1989, you have the unraveling of the Soviet empire, and then you have Tiananmen Square and the, and the massacre. And so some people thought, well, maybe this could be the moment when you start to see the United States getting tougher with China, because once the Soviet Union is gone, the whole geopolitical rationale for engaging China can come under question. But I think a few things sort of intervened and we sketch out some of this history in the book. One is just China was much weaker then. You know, it was often joked that if China tried to invade Taiwan in the 1990s, it would be a million man swim. They just didn't have the capability to really expand militarily. At the same time, China was a huge economic opportunity, you know, with 1.3 billion people along coastline in the heart of rising Asia and a government that is willing to um, to trash the environment and to pave the way for big business to come in. It was just it was just too good of an opportunity. And so American multinationals flooded into China. And so that kind of kicked the can down the road in terms of a strategic reckoning. I think it's interesting to remember that when the George W. Bush administration was coming into office, they initially were talking about China as a strategic competitor, as well as not wanting to do nation building. But then, you know, 9-11 happens and the United States is catapulted into a series of wars in the Middle East and is actually trying to get Chinese cooperation, one, to get UN Security Council authorization for various military interventions. But second, just so that China's not causing problems in Asia while the United States is bogged down in the Middle East. So there's just a series of events that kind of delayed the reckoning. And it wasn't really until the 2008 financial crisis that a number of things came to fruition that really started to change the debate. And then things, of course, really take off under the Trump presidency, which I think is really the first presidential administration to adopt a sort of neo-containment strategy towards China to really start turning the screw. So by, by, you know, fits and starts, the United States eventually came around to getting tough with China, but a number of factors intervened along the way. As I understand it, you believe that many policymakers and other experts have a flawed understanding of the U.S.-China geopolitical competitive relationship. Hal, could you explain what's flawed about the general consensus, how you view the relationship, and how your view of the relationship contextualizes the argument you make in your book? Yeah, they're basically overbought on the China rise narrative. And and so I think the prevailing wisdom is kind of the China is number one wisdom in, in a way that's kind of an echo of the Japan is number one wisdom back from the, the late 80s and early 90s. And it basically runs 
along these lines, which is that China has experienced breathtaking economic growth, which has underwritten a phenomenal military buildup. There's every reason to expect those trends to continue. And so it's just a matter of time until China passes the United States as the world's leading economy and and develops global influence uh, to match. Our argument is that that is basically wrong. Uh, that that China should be viewed more as a risen or perhaps as a peaking power than as a rising power, because there's simply not much reason to expect the uh, really tremendous economic growth of the three decades after the beginning of the reform and opening period in 1978, 1979 to continue. And in fact, it, it has already slowed considerably from where it was uh, on the eve of the global financial crisis in, in 2007, 2008. And there are a variety of reasons why China is going to find it very difficult to achieve the level of growth that the Communist Party wants to achieve in the coming years. Everything from uh, demographic problems, China is going to have a shrinking working age population at the same time it has a mushrooming retirement age population, to a political system that has become increasingly hostile to the dictates of rapid growth, to the fact that the world just is not nearly as welcoming of China's rise as it once was. And so countries around the world, particularly advanced democracies, are taking more and more measures to protect their own economies from predatory Chinese practices and are becoming less welcoming of sort of the unfettered economic integration that was such a powerful stimulant to China's economic rise. Add all that to the fact that China has succeeded in alienating uh, the vast majority of advanced democracies around the world not just in Asia, but also in, in Europe and, and in other places. And you're going to have a country that is facing uh, two big problems. One is going to be economic stagnation uh, in the coming years. The other is going to be strategic encirclement. As more and more countries do more and more to try to protect themselves from Chinese aggression in, in ways that we're seeing right now through the Quad or AUKUS or, or other initiatives. And so that's going to make the long-term future look more problematic from China's perspective. We're not forecasting that the regime is going to collapse or that there is uh, going to be a revolution in China. We're, we're forecasting that China is just simply going to have difficulty achieving the strategic goals that it has laid out for itself, which are pretty ambitious. And so as that happens, China may actually become more dangerous. There will be more of a temptation for Chinese leaders, notably Xi Jinping, to make big gambles now to try to achieve things that may not be achievable forever. We go into some detail about what those things may be, everything from the incorporation of Taiwan into the PRC to a variety of other things. But historically, it has been peaking revisionist powers, not rising revisionist powers that behave most aggressively and most dangerously. And that's what we're worried about in the Chinese case. So how both of you in your book catalog the history of falling powers acting aggressively, including Germany in the early 1900s and Russia in the current moment. Could you take us through some of those examples and explain why they're so instructive uh, to the current situation? Sure. So uh, maybe the canonical example here would be uh, Germany on the eve of World War One. There have often been parallels drawn between the Germany-UK relationship in the late 19th early 20th centuries and the Sino-American relationship today. Interestingly, though, I think that the parallel that's most worrying is the fact that Germany was no longer a confident rising power at the time that World War I started. It was a power that understood 
that its capabilities, at least in relative terms, had peaked and were on the verge of decline. Uh, and so Germany, uh, really over the course of a few decades after unification in, in 1870-71, became an economic heavyweight in, in Europe. It became the foremost land power on the continent and started developing a, a navy that was meant to rival uh, Britain's. And particularly after Otto von Bismarck left the, the scene, uh, after the accession of Carver Wilhelm II, the German foreign policy began to evolve in a more aggressive direction. And, and what happened in response was that Germany found itself in, encircled. It, it, it created, or rather it precipitated the creation uh, first of an alliance between France and Russia, and then of the Triple Entente involving uh, Britain as, as well. And by the, the eve of World War I, largely in part, largely as a response to Germany's own behavior, its rivals were increasingly arming themselves in ways that were going to make Germany's military advantages disappear. And, and so both the French uh, and the Russians had major military modernization plans underway. The Germans were particularly worried about the modernization of German, of, of Russian railroads, that is, that would dramatically shorten the mobilization time required to bring Russian troops to the front. Uh, the Royal Navy had, had made clear that it was not going to be uh, surpassed by the German fleet. And in fact, Germany had essentially lost the naval arms race by that point. And so there emerged more and more of a now or never mentality uh, in Berlin. The, uh, the Kaiser and, and some of the military leaders and a few of the civilian leaders around him began to worry that Germany had only a few years left in which to achieve its goals, to, to achieve preeminent status within Europe and perhaps carve out some of the global gains the German leaders had aspired to. And so it wasn't that Germany sort of intentionally and explicitly resolved to start a global war uh, over nothing. It was that when the July crisis started in 1914 with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Germany was willing to run some pretty extreme risks. It, it, was, it was knowingly willing to run the risk of a continental war uh, with France and, and Russia and was willing to invade Belgium, even though that meant a significant risk of a war with Great Britain, in large part because German policymakers feared that tomorrow would not be better, that the Germany's strategic situation would, would deteriorate and it would find itself at, at the mercy of its enemies. And so it's, it's a classic example of how a country that is already strong, as Germany was, but has begun to peak, can make some really rash decisions based on a fear that tomorrow will be worse than today. You explain in the first chapter that geopolitical conflicts often happen at the intersection of ambition and desperation, both of which you think will drive Chinese governance over the next decade. Mike, could you explain where you see the signs of this ambition and desperation in the current Chinese political climate and why you think these factors will spur aggression in the near future? Sure. So in terms of the ambition, I think it's pretty clear, not just in what Chinese leaders are saying, but also in what China has been doing. So you know, Chinese leaders have been saying, we want the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. They've been staking out territorial claims that include not just Hong Kong and Taiwan, but you know Austria-sized chunks of Indian-controlled territory, as well as some 80% of the East and South China Seas. They've rolled out an economic policy that looks a lot like imperialism to me, essentially carving out privileged economic zones where, um, especially through the global South, where countries get hooked on Chinese technology Chinese companies to build their infrastructure, uh, access to the Chinese market and access to Chinese loans. 
And uh, at the same time, they've been pioneering a new form of, of digital authoritarianism that just makes authoritarianism much more efficient and effective. So they've been moving very quickly, but we worry that these sky high ambitions, which, you know, frankly, go, go way back. I mean, you can, you can trace the evolution of Chinese leaders thinking of their country as naturally being, should, should be the dominant country in the world and that this period of Western ascendance is like a jarring aberration. You can trace that way back in Chinese history. But what we worry about today is that those ambitions are going to slam into a number of problems, many of which Hal sketched out earlier with the declining uh, rate of growth and the strategic encirclement. And so now we worry that China is starting to move faster to try to consolidate the gains it already has, to, to uh, snatch what it can while it still can, and to score near-term victories that can alter the long-term trends in the balance of power. So the most obvious case is Taiwan. I mean, China has been waging the most provocative and sustained show of force in the Taiwan Strait for about a year and a half now. And that obviously has been ramped up to a new level in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's um, visit. And at the same time, you know, China has, uh, you know, doled out a trillion dollars in loans to developing countries that have created relationships of dependency. And so we just look around the world and we see China moving much faster to consolidate these gains than it was in the 1990s and the 2000s when China was, you know, preaching friendship diplomacy and a peaceful rise. Now wolf warrior diplomacy has replaced friendship diplomacy and China is talking about uh, using economic leverage for coercive purposes. And at the same time, it's gearing up for a potential war around its periphery. You cite evidence in the book that China seeks to dominate the global order such as its apparent plans to regain territories in the region, the Belt and Road Initiative, and large-scale efforts to achieve technological supremacy. Mike, why are these initiatives signs of precipitous short-term aggression instead of long-term commitments to sustainable growth? Well, I think in the in the case of Taiwan, um, that's to me that's the clearest case because this this is an area where you know for a long time China's approach was much more patient and peaceful, basically trying to use economic manifest destiny to essentially absorb Taiwan over time just through economic dependence. But as opinion polls in Taiwan have moved in the opposite direction, you have more and more Taiwanese thinking of themselves as solely Taiwanese. Support for unification is, is at rock bottom. Support for tepid moves towards uh, something closer to independence have increased. And so China's running out of peaceful options. And I think that's why you see China starting to brandish the military option much more ostentatiously. Um, in the technological sphere, I think, you know, after 2008, China realized that it couldn't really count on easy access to developed country markets in the West. I mean, Beijing suddenly got slapped with thousands of new trade and investment barriers, and you just had a collapse in demand for Chinese exports. And so it was, a, it was in the early 2010s, you start to see the Chinese say, well, we need a new privileged economic zone, essentially, that will guarantee long-term uh, demand for our exports. Uh, it'll help us secure access to natural resources and also at the same time pump up our technological capabilities through a, a major industrial drive. And so the fact that China has just allocated so much money towards something like Belt and Road, something enormously ambitious and is so economically overextended, I think also shows just how quickly and how aggressively they feel China has to move in order to alter some of these longer term trends. So it seems to me that China will only act aggressively if its leaders actually acknowledge that China is not likely to grow sustainably. 
And some of the rhetoric in Xi's speeches and, and other leaders' speeches would indicate that they do see China as able to outpace the United States in the long term. Hal, why do you think the rhetoric in those speeches is not their genuine belief? What evidence do you see of that? I think you have to uh, read the statements of Chinese leaders carefully. And if you just run the, the thought experiment, what, what would happen if Xi Jinping were to say the Chinese economic model is fundamentally unsustainable? My own policies are, are making it less likely that China will grow at high rates in the coming years. And we're increasingly finding ourselves encircled by countries that we ourselves have antagonized. It, it probably wouldn't end particularly well for him. And so there is an inbuilt uh, bias against that sort of candid assessment, at least in public, in an autocratic system such as China's. What, what's interesting, though, is that you actually don't have to dig too deep to find evidence that Chinese leaders have become increasingly anxious about the country's prospects. And, and so we cite um, internal speeches that Xi Jinping and other officials have have given uh, about the dangers inherent in China's economic uh, situation. There have been reports about internal Chinese Communist Party documents that, that essentially reveal that, that China has become more widely loathed internationally than at any time since Tiananmen Square as a result uh, of COVID. You can find relatively hawkish observers within the Chinese foreign policy ecosystem, and including folks with pretty close ties to the PLA or to the diplomatic establishment, pointing out that China has fallen into the trap that has ensnared a number of autocratic great powers over the last hundred years, which is basically to make enemies on all side and, and most damagingly to make an enemy of the United States. And you can see it in, in the fact that there is just less and less candid reporting allowed in China about the state of the economy today than there was a decade ago, let alone uh, 15 or, or 20 years ago. And so even though it's difficult to you know, find a single smoking gun of, of Xi Jinping and his cronies saying, yes, we are a peaking power, not a rising power, there's actually a great deal of evidence that the Chinese government is, is viewing developments at home and abroad with a greater sense of alarm. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me 
their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You discuss in the book the lessons that the U.S. can learn from the Cold War and reference for strategic insights in particular that should guide policymaking with respect to China over the next decade. Mike, could you describe some of these insights and why they could be so helpful? 
Well, I think the the first insight is simply that you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. You know, at, at, in the early Cold War, you know, a lot of the things that we take for granted, something like NATO or the Western commercial networks that allowed the United States and its allies and their economies to thrive, those things didn't exist. And in fact, most of Eurasia, including key U.S. what would become U.S. allies, were essentially shell shocked and reduced to rubble in the wake of the Second World War. Uh, but at the same time, you have the Soviet military that's deployed across uh, Europe and into parts of Asia. And so the United States policymakers had to move fast. They didn't have a long time to slowly garner America's long-term advantages and invest in long-term R&D and try to build a coalition over time. They basically had to set stuff up really quickly to shore up uh, the situation in, in Europe and Asia to make sure that communist parties didn't score massive victories to make sure that the Soviet Union couldn't expand militarily. Um, and you also have the shock of the Korean War that suddenly the United States has to deal with. And so we go through and explain how a lot of the institutions, even something as big as NATO essentially gets started or the Marshall Plan is, is conceived in, in just a matter of weeks or months and then is quickly implemented in an ad hoc fashion that sort of accumulates momentum over time. And so we see the same thing being necessary with China today. You know, we used to think of China as this, this our competition with China as this 100-year marathon, this new Cold War where each side has decades to marshal its resources and rally a coalition. But we worry that be, this period of maximum danger in the 2020s means just like in the early Cold War, the United States needs to basically MacGyver a number of solutions to shore up the military balance in the Taiwan Strait to prevent China from making uh, locking in technological and economic dependence across the global south and to prevent the spread of digital authoritarianism in ways that will make it very hard for democracy to ever reemerge in a number of countries around the world. You claim in the book that the U.S. needs to turn away from trying to make China play by a fair and open economic order. And you say the U.S. should turn to power politics instead. What would that look like? And are alliances like AUKUS and the Quad, are those steps in the right direction? Or do you think that something else needs to happen? So for about 25 years after the end of the Cold War, I think the U.S. vision uh, was to forge kind of a single, increasingly integrated global economy in which everybody could profitably participate. And the thinking, there was a geopolitical rationale to this, of course. It wasn't, it wasn't simply greed. It was that if you drew China into this system, it would become more mollified uh, because it would achieve wealth and prestige and power within a system that it would have no incentive to disrupt. And perhaps it would evolve in the direction of political liberalism and the direction of democracy over time as you built up a middle class that would demand political rights to go along with its economic status. It's been clear for a few years now that that bet has not paid off, that, that you got a more globally integrated China, but one that was actually increasingly autocratic and increasingly aggressive. Uh, and so as a result, the connection between geoeconomics and geopolitics and American policy was kind of severed. You had these things working at, at cross purposes. So the argument we're making is that you, you have to align geoeconomics and geopolitics uh, once more. And, and so what this means is working really hard to cultivate a thriving international economy, but, but one that is made up mostly of the countries that China threatens while leaving China on the outside and even selectively trying to weaken its economic 
capabilities in, in areas such as 5G telecommunications, for instance, where the United States has actually done precisely this over the last two to three years. And so in, instead of thinking about our goal being one of creating a, a single seamlessly integrated global order, what we're going to end up with is kind of like a rump liberal order that hopefully will become more and more developed and more and more cooperative, but will hold China and other aggressive powers on the outside for the foreseeable future. And so it's a shift back towards sort of the two worlds type approach that we saw during the Cold War, as opposed to more of the one world approach that became prevalent after the Cold War ended. So you you describe in the book that many of the countries that would be part of these informal alliances, this rump order, are very dependent on China right now. For example, Chinese consumers buy a very high percentage of German cars, um, and there are other similar examples. How do you know that those countries will be willing to give up those short-term economic opportunities for this long-term geopolitical prosperity? I mean, I, I don't think you know for sure. Uh, I think you know a, a few things have have made it perhaps more likely. I think for one thing that, ironically, Russia's invasion of Ukraine sort of galvanized discussions within the West you, because you obviously had collusion in order to sanction Russia. And there was also conversations about, well, what about China? And what are we going to do if China starts becoming more aggressive in East Asia? And so something that looked impossible, you know, Germany becoming a more active uh, member of a Western democratic coalition that's geopolitically on the march looks more likely today than it was, say, six months ago. I think another factor is just China has actually been doing some of the hard work for the United States just by being so overtly belligerent, almost to like North Korean style levels of in-your-face hostility um, and really shooting itself in the foot in a number of cases. So there's there's a number of examples we go through in the book, you know, uh, just from 2021, you had, uh, you know, China overreact to uh, having sanctions slapped on four officials because of abuses in Xinjiang. And so China countered with a bunch of sanctions on members of the, the EU parliament, as well as European think tanks. And so then the European Union retaliated by suspending its investment treaty that it was going to have with China. Or if you look at what happened with some a country like Australia, which I remember five or six years ago had this big national debate of should we lean to the American side or should we lean to the Chinese side? Because we depend on the Americans for security. We depend on the Chinese for economics. But, you know, in the wake of COVID, where Australia had the audacity to ask, you know, hey, where did COVID come from? China completely had a wolf warrior meltdown and imposed what is essentially a trade war on Australia, raising tariffs on many of its key exports into China. And in response, you've seen AUKUS emerge from that. You've seen a a total reorientation of strategic policy in Australia. So even though it's going to be hard to cobble these things together, I think that there's at least some momentum partially propelled by China. The United States still has to do the hard work. But a point we make again in the book is that these, these coalitions don't necessarily have to be perfect. They don't have to be broadly multilateral. In many cases, like for example, the the coalition that is cutting off China from high-end semiconductors basically involves four or five key players. Uh, And so you could have a set of mini-lateral coalitions, each focused on particular areas of competition with China, that when you add them all together, form a pretty potent containment barrier against China. You discuss how Taiwan is a kind of flashpoint in this uh, U.S.-China competition, and that's kind of the focus generally right now among commentators. 
Taiwan hasn't bolstered its military as much as many might have hoped, and there are no strong indications that it will do so in the next few years. You talk about how the U.S. should incentivize Taiwan to do that and help Taiwan move toward a stronger military posture. What's the likelihood of that happening over the next few years, and what signs should we be looking for to see that progress? Well, it gets better and better with every crisis that China provokes. And so I think the the basic state of play right now is that Taiwan has a pretty smart defense concept. It's relatively new. It was adopted a couple of years ago. And the idea is to use cheap and plentiful capabilities to basically turn China's anti-access area denial strategy against it. You you acquire lots of things like anti-ship missiles, sea mines, drones, uh, expendable or tritable ISR, and, and other relatively cheap capabilities that can have a pretty devastating impact on, say, a Chinese invasion fleet uh, or some other sort of Chinese effort to exert military and political control over Taiwan. And that's a strategy, I think, that has a good chance of succeeding if it is implemented quickly enough, because Taiwan has a lot of natural advantages. You got to cross a lot of choppy water to get from uh, China to Taiwan. There's only a few beaches you can land a sizable invasion uh, force on. Taiwan's terrain is very favorable to the defense. It's got jungle, it's got mountains, it's got crowded urban environments. That's an attacker's nightmare. And so if, if Taiwan adopts the right strategy, I think it'll be in good shape. The challenge is that it's just not moving particularly quickly to adopt that strategy. And, and, and to the Taiwanese military still has a lot of weaknesses. There's still a significant portion of the budget that's spent on you know, big ships and planes that are likely to be killed on the first day of a war with China. There's not much of a reserve system, although that's, that's changing. There are real questions about how psychologically prepared the Taiwanese population would be for a a protracted and and potentially quite devastating conflict with China. And the timetable for implementation of Taiwan's defense reforms is still too long. It's still really extending late into this decade and even into into the decade that follows when what we need to be thinking about is more of kind of a crash emergency program whereby Taiwan can stock up on the sorts of capabilities that would really give PLA planners and Xi Jinping pause. And and so I think that those are the sorts of acquisitions that the United States needs to be encouraging. It probably has to be coupled with more realistic military staff talks, for instance, between the United States and Taiwan to give the Taiwanese leadership some confidence within the confines of our, our one China policy and our policy of strategic ambiguity that the United States actually would come to Taiwan's assistance if it suffered an unprovoked attack by the PRC. But but if we don't push Taiwan pretty hard to load up on the sort of capabilities that would actually make a meaningful difference in a fight with China sometime this decade, we're not helping them and we're not helping ourselves. So the, the U.S. policy toward the defense of Taiwan has been quite ambiguous with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and at the same time, the one China policy. There are kind of a lot of different things moving in different directions. What would you advocate as a specific uh, kind of public policy that the U.S. should state more of this ambiguity or a stronger defense? Uh, What would you advocate in the next year and then maybe over the next five years? I think the United States should 
talk a lot less and do a lot more. Right now, you kind of have the worst of both worlds because the U.S. is talking very loudly, sending over high-ranking officials, legislation pending on Capitol Hill about either upgrading Taiwan's international status or the U.S. defense commitments to Taiwan. I think all of that is just provoking Beijing into a fight that from a U.S. side will be great to have some extra time to get ready for. So to me, it seems like the United States should almost be doing the opposite of what it's been doing uh, in in recent months, which is namely to focus on, first of all, all of those defense reforms that uh, Hal just spelled out, essentially trying to turn the be able to turn the Taiwan Strait into a, a no man's sea if you need to, to be able to sink large numbers of Chinese ships that are either trying to blockade or invade the mainland. I think upgrading Taiwan's status uh, doesn't make sense strategically for the United States, as well as for the Taiwanese, the vast majority of whom are happy with the status quo where they essentially have de facto independence and they just they are willing to live with the fact that it's not official if it means it reduces the likelihood of a Chinese assault uh, on their nation. So to me, that seems like the best policy to talk softly and carry a big stick. That's usually good advice. I think it's excellent advice on the Taiwan Strait today. In your last chapter, you discuss how the global order might look if the U.S. were to succeed in maintaining control of geopolitics and democracy were to win out over authoritarianism over the next decade. And you talk about how even this victory will present difficulties. Hal, could you lay out this picture? It's not a super pretty picture, at least compared to what we might have hoped for a decade or 25 years ago. I think it's it's inevitable that the United States is going to be dealing with a powerful and problematic China for a long time to come. When we talk about a peaking China, we're not talking about a China whose power is about to fall off a cliff and cease becoming a problem for the United States. Uh, as Adam Smith said, there's a lot of ruin in the nation. Uh, and so you could have a China whose economy has stagnated that continues to, to raise challenges for the international order, for the United States, for its allies, for many, many years beyond the 2020s. And so what we're probably looking at in, in a good case scenario is that you have sort of rival spheres of influence or rival geopolitical blocks, one that is made up of the United States and uh, most of the world's advanced democracies, along with some developing democracies and friendly autocratic regimes, and one that is led by China and may include Russia, it may include Iran, it may include uh, some other developing countries uh, around the globe. The United States is not going to be successful at, at totally constricting the spread of Chinese influence in this decade or, or any other. And so our, our goal ought to be for the U.S. block, basically, that the U.S. Uh, crew in international politics to be larger, stronger, and more influential than China's. I, I think that is eminently doable. Uh, if you look at things like uh, shares of global GDP, shares of global military spending, the U.S. just plus its formal democratic treaty allies in Europe and the Asia Pacific significantly outweighs China, China plus Russia, China plus Russia, plus any other combination you can think of. And so I, I think that is a doable objective. What we have to realize, though, is that is still going to be an international system that is fraught with tension for some time to come. The, the Cold War parallel is relevant here. The most dangerous period of the Cold War was, was really the first 15 years of that struggle from the late 1940s through the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s. But it wasn't as though the Cold War ended after that. You had another 25 years of geopolitical rivalry, and it was only resolved in the late 1980s 
and early 1990s. And during that time, you had a very divided international world, economically, geopolitically, militarily. I think, unfortunately, that, that's probably what we're looking at in the coming decades. And so our goal shouldn't be perfection, as Mike said earlier. It should be a good enough global system where the United States and its friends can hold their own vis-a-vis their challengers. So it kind of seems like we've, at least according to your view, we've crossed the point where we could have had this global order that is all kind of cooperative. We're we're now in this bipolar uh, or moving toward a bipolar uh, space between democracy and authoritarianism. What lessons can be learned from reaching this point for the next century in geopolitics? Why are we at this point where we can't have more cooperation? You know, I I think the the trouble starts... uh, in my mind anyway, around the 2008 financial crisis, because then you had the United States suddenly become much more paranoid about its own decline, just given the economic crisis. And you had China sort of on the one hand being cocky abroad in the sense that they looked at the American model and said, well, that clearly isn't the way to go. Um, But at the same time, it, it confronted China with a number of economic and strategic pressures, namely the collapse of its export markets abroad in developed countries, um, just a more hostile environment. And so each country starts to kind of go its own way at that point. And we've seen this in history, you know, when economic times get tough and geopolitical tensions start to rise, you really start to see competition among the top great powers increase. So I think you start to see a number of developments over those years. And then, of course, as the United States starts to withdraw from the Middle East, it starts being able to focus more on its geopolitical rival, who all the while is engaged in everything from the the largest military buildup we've seen in peacetime in at least a generation, uh, this unprecedented lending surge that turned China into the world's banker in in many respects, um, and new competition over new technologies that a lot of people are saying could, could revolutionize how economies are run, but also how militaries compete and how nations deal with each other. So if one country can dominate artificial intelligence, that's going to give it a huge leg up. So there were just a number of factors that really contributed to heightened geopolitical tensions that may honestly have been inevitable, just that you have an anarchic system, you have the two most powerful countries with overlapping spheres of influence and uh, in in many ways, incompatible uh, regime types and, and ideologies, and therefore want to see a different, a fundamentally different kind of world emerge. So maybe some of this was was inevitable. I don't think you can blame the United States too much, given that I, I really think the United States tried very hard to cajole China to become a reluctant, if not responsible, stakeholder in the existing system. But you can also understand it from China's perspective that that system, of course, they didn't have a hand in writing. That system certainly privileges democratic governments um, and those that are going to be more willing to open up both their uh, political systems and economies. And that system has been in the past deadly for authoritarian regimes, particularly of the communist bent. They can look at the Soviets, the Eastern Europeans, as well as various color revolutions. And to them, they, they see this world as an unacceptable and potentially hostile one for the rule of the CCP. So I think there's just, you know, some people say this, this whole rivalry between the United States and China is like a big misunderstanding. It's a security dilemma. I, I personally don't subscribe to that. To me, it just seems like the two countries understand each other pretty well and they dislike what they see for pretty good reasons because a lot of the main issues in this relationship are zero sum at their base. Taiwan can either be ruled 
from Beijing or from Taipei. Uh, the South China Sea can either be an international waterway or it can be Chinese territorial waters. The internet can either be a big open space where the information flows freely or it can be censored into oblivion and controlled by states. I mean, just across, you know, 5G technology, like you can either use Huawei or you can use some American selected alternative, right? So there's just so many issues that at their nature are zero sum. And I think that has pushed us to this point where we are now saying, well, maybe the best way to deal with this is to, for at least a while, have sort of two worlds and at least secure an American-led side of the world and then try to come back from a position of strength and come back to the table with the Chinese in the long run. But in the short run, it just doesn't look like there's much space for compromise. Okay, we will leave it there. Hal Brands, Mike Beckley, thank you for joining us in the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.